So this is case 45 from the Shoyoroku, the Book of Equanimity. The Sutra of Complete Awakening. Introduction. A manifest koan depends solely on right now. The fundamental family style does not go beyond the fundamental. If you forcibly set up divisions and foolishly expand efforts, it's all drawing eyebrows for chaos putting a handle on a ball. So how is tranquility achieved? The main case, attention. The Sutra of Complete Awakening says, at all times, do not produce deluded thoughts. Also, do not try to annihilate deluded states of mind. In the realm of false conception, do not apply knowledge. And do not find reality in no knowledge. The verse. Magnificent, clearly outstanding, clamor pierces the head, walking along in tranquil places, underfoot, the thread is cut, and I am perfectly free. The spot on the mud, the spot of mud on the nose is gone. You do not need to chop. Do not be disturbed. A prescription written on a thousand year old paper. So today's 2,500 year old paper. You get the point. <clears throat> In our recent Shinjin Mei study sessions, we have been discussing our tendency to think and operate in dualistic ways. And our need a deep need or desire to identify with some conceptual idea or cause. And as we know from our own experiences, we need to, there is the, the need to latch on to ideas and personal preferences. This need is often carried over into our spiritual practice. And it induces a search to define it or dress it up in a way that sets it apart from what we may define as the other side of my spiritual tradition, the one I follow. Whether it's about what I think the tradition stands for or what I personally want to achieve by practicing it. In terms of what we're trying to achieve, it is very common to view Zen practice as the other side of chaos and to engage with it for the purpose of finding solace and respite from our chaotic life. But while it is prevalent and logical to think this way, we need to dig in deeper and examine the state of mind that gives rise to such dualistic thinking. The line of the Shinjin Mei reads, in delusion, chaos and stillness arise. In enlightenment, there is no desire and aversion. So the need to define or to try to capture our changing experience of reality arise from delusion, but at the same time it perpetuates it when we chase one and try to escape the other. And when we identify with one or the other, recipe for unnecessary suffering. However, 
in an enlightened state of being, stillness and chaos are experienced as interwoven manifestations of reality and therefore not grasped or rejected, not to be grasped or rejected. Right? It is a true state of equanimity which arises from not being attached to preferences. So in the commentary, if you may remember, Musong said, authentic equanimity means a complete letting go of all likes and dislikes without any traces remaining. Only then does equanimity become a place of resting, so long as rest and unrest are categories of conceptual self-referentiality, one moves farther and farther away from equanimity. And that's really the point, the conceptual self-referentiality, right? So we, we have a reference place, right? We create, hold on, sustain a place of, re a point of reference by which we define or by which we interact with the world. And then, obviously, define it, define ourselves by it. So, what he's describing is that being in this state of equanimity, there is clear acknowledgement of rest and unrest, or stillness and chaos, but these are not taken as categories that pertain to a particular unchanging self. So, there is no gain and loss, and therefore, no traces and no drama. Nothing is created by that. It is, in a way, from a place of equanimity, there is ample amount of space for both, for all states of being, right? In, in this particular case, he's talking about rest and unrest, or stillness and chaos. There's definitely room for that, not just room for that, they are both seen as natural occurring or occurrence of reality. That's how reality appears. It doesn't appear to appease us or to appease our created personal preferences. It appears the way it appears. So going beyond our dualistic way of being and experiencing life with equanimity is obviously one of the most challenging endeavors for us as human beings, but as practitioners, that's precisely the task we're encouraged to engage with on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Now, I'd like to add to that that it is a matter of practice rather than a matter of achievement. Because when we see that or we hear that, it seems impossible, or at least impossible for me. But what's, what's not impossible is to practice. What may be impossible is to get to an idea of it that I have in my mind or how, it sh how I should feel when I am experiencing equanimity. That's impossible because that's made up. But if I go back to the question of how do I practice it, more precisely, how do I practice it right now is the only important question. That becomes doable. I can do something now. I cannot do anything about where I will be or what I will experience later. So that brings it back to, again and again, to this moment. So in the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the most important texts in the Zen tradition, there's a line that says, dwelling nowhere, raise the body-mind. 
And this simple statement not only sums up the entire sutra, it also provides us with the most vital advice for embracing equanimity as a practice. And it lays out the most direct shortcut, shortcut for embodying the Buddha's teaching. The only, again, the only place, the only time to embody the Buddha's teachings right now. To not dwell is to raise the body mind. So it's not dwelling nowhere and then I will raise the body mind. Not dwelling is how the body mind functions. And for those of you who are new, body mind means awakened mind. Awakened mind, awakened state of being. Not awakened, again, as an idea that I will later find or realize. More as a way of practicing right now. Asking the question, am I? Am I awakened right now? Where, where is my attention? Where is my awareness right now? What, what kind of thoughts or emotions am I engaged with and preoccupied by? That's moment-by-moment moment awareness. That's moment-by-moment moment practice. So it says not non-dwelling. So what is non-dwelling and how does it manifest in our lives? So the conventional definition of dwelling, when we hear the word, the word dwelling, we think of a place of residence, which is typically a structure made up of walls and a roof that provides us with a place of refuge or shelter from the outside world. But the structure alone isn't a place of dwelling until and unless someone resides in it and calls it my home. It becomes what I may call my home after I develop an emotional and psychological connection with the physical structure. Before that, it's just a home. It's not my home. Now, in terms of Zen practice, what we refer to as a dwelling place pertains to the conceptual structures we create from our thoughts, feelings, associations, and fixed conclusions that arise in us through our daily interactions with life. Now, this could be about an actual physical place of dwelling, about our position at work or our perceived place in a societal structure, about our family or family members, about our self-image, about our body, or about the state of our world, which is rapidly changing in front of our eyes. That could be the way it was, right? The, the idea of it was summer was summer, winter was winter. Now, I don't know what that is. And I want to go back to that. That was a dwelling place. This is reality. It is changing. The fact that it's changing rapidly doesn't mean it was not always changing. The speed has nothing to do with the reality of change. It's just that when it's slow, we can daydream. When it's fast and in our face, we can't. We have to wake up. We have to figure out what to do when it's 100 degrees weather. So we can't take it for granted. And all of it, all those ideas produce a fixed mental structure we become attached to and grasp. 
And without engaging with the practice of awareness on a momentary basis, these structures become quickly calcified within us as fixed conceptual images we end up dwelling in. And, as opposed to dwelling nowhere, dwelling somewhere gives rise to the deluded mind rather than to the body mind. Either way, Dwelling or non-dwelling will give rise to some state. So it arises from a state, a particular state of being, and it gives rise to furthering that particular state of being. So in other words, as we often say, there is no cruising, there is no in-between. Whatever I do, I am creating something. There is no, I'm just gonna take a break like taking a break from practice, for example. I'm not. I'm practicing something else. And this process functions on an automatic mode. But we can become aware of how thoughts become calcified dwelling places when our cherished ideas and opinions clash with another person or with reality, which we may not like. We often feel threatened, attacked, or even violated when someone goes against our opinions and our belief system, or when we encounter unexpected challenges. And we may feel that we are treated unfairly by life. Right? And this is very common, but at the same time, because it's so common, it gives us tangible, moment-by-moment -moment ways to engage with what we're talking about in terms of practice. So it's not an idea, this is real. Our reactivities are real. So when we react, it's a great, again, it's a great opportunity for us to turn inwardly and examine how does this, well, first of all, where does it come from? Why do I feel this way? Putting aside the, uh, the external circumstances, that's what we mean by going deeper. Why do I really feel this way right now? Where does it come from? And then examining that and examining, when we examine how it becomes calcified, it loses its being calcified or the, the, the firm idea of it starts to dissolve in front of our eyes. It could go either way. When we, prepare, when we uh, follow the reactivities and rail against something or someone, it becomes further calcified. So it works both ways. Now, because in most cases we take the reactivity for granted, the rising anger and the desire to defend and retaliate, or to crawl into a corner and steep in self-pity, make perfect sense for us. So that's another thing we have to get over. The fact that it makes sense doesn't make it true. Or I should say it differently. The fact that it makes sense doesn't mean it will not produce further suffering. Because it does. Again, we have to turn inwardly and examine our own experiences and learn from our own life. Learn the Buddha's teachings, in a way, from our own lives. Now, such common reactivities can provide us with wonderful opportunities to bear witness to the conceptual structure-making mechanism in real time. And this kind of observation can help us realize that what appears to be solid and fixed is in fact fluid and changing. And what makes it seem fixed 
further is me following it, feeding it, going along with the reactivity. We all, we all have to realize that we're all vested in different things. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's no, we all are, some, some of it we may be aware of, some of it we may not, but we have to look deep and, and, and learn from the reactivities that will tell us what we are vested in. Because right away, the reactivity is saying to you, to us, I care way too much about this. What is it that I care about? What if I attach to that, that I become so immersed that it feels like I need to actually protect it? So we're all vested in something, but the desire, and we're vested in different things, but the desire itself to grasp or to be vested has nothing to do with our preferences or what we are vested in. It arises out of a deep yearning to be in alignment with who we are. Never mind that it doesn't work. But that's what it comes out of, a deep yearning to be at home. So what is home? And the answer to this can be found in the first of the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. I vow to take refuge in Buddha. I vow to take refuge in Buddha. Right? It is a practice of taking refuge. Right? We are... It is a, it's a devotional practice. Now, the, word, the, the, the idea of devotional practice, we may have some reactivity to that too. Right? I don't want this. I want to practice, but I, I'm also interested in other things. Right? That's superficial way of understanding or hearing devotional practice. Devotional practice in terms of Zen means I vow devotion to who I am above who I think I am. Right? So who I think I am is going to come up again and again and try to fight that. Try to retaliate against the deeper aspect of me that wants to go home to who I truly am. And that's what we have to, of course, work with. But devotional practice means... We are devoted to, and to, fit, to, to sitting with that, to experiencing who we truly are, and then allowing that to guide us in life, rather than thoughts, emotions, karma. So the statement is simple. I vow devotion. Right? I, I will take refuge. But the practice, is prof practice of that is profoundly complex. It means I vow to cultivate deep states of concentration and awareness so I can witness their rising tendencies, so I can bear witness to me, to my own, me as my own reactivities. Then I vow to strengthen the discipline so I can remain unmoved when thoughts and habitual patterns knock on the door and ask me to go for a ride. And I vow to raise deliberate intention to not dwell. Because if I don't raise deliberate intention to not dwell, I will dwell. I am dwelling. So at all times, I vow to raise deliberate intention to not dwell. All times, all circumstances. 
And again, to dwell nowhere is to raise the body mind. To dwell somewhere is to raise a deluded mind. Because any dwelling place, being an idea or physical structure, is falling apart. Is in a, in a constant state of disintegration and becoming. How do I dwell? when what I'm dwelling in is falling apart. St. Charles says, a place isn't conscious. The reason it is venerated is because the teaching is there. The way rests in people, he said. The way rests in people. So a place isn't conscious. So even this place, right? You know, we, we, there is a building, there is a structure, right? So we have a statue, right? So we have an altar, we light incense, all the cushions, all of it. There is nothing in it. It is in us. We imbue it with what we venerate, with what we bow to. It's our own energy that gives it what we then follow. So we have to turn again, again and again, inwardly and realize it. So when we realize that the way rests in people, which really is most intimate statement, it's not in people, it's in me, it's in you. Because there are no people a part of you. The way is you. You are the way. So when we realize that, as St. Charles says, we recognize that our ability to be at home at all times is innate. But to truly experience this, we need to develop a keen awareness of our thoughts and emotions and learn to recognize the grasping process in real time. You may adjust your position. Huang Po said, ordinary people are unwilling to empty their minds. They're afraid they'll fall into emptiness, unaware that their own minds are already empty. The fool gets rid of phenomena and not the mind. The wise gets rid of the mind and not phenomena. A bodhisattva's mind is like space. A bodhisattva gives away everything outside and inside. Such great renunciation is like walking with a candle before you. You cannot get lost. Lesser renunciation is like walking with a candle to one side or behind you. You're bound to fall into a ditch. And, and it, this is very real because we experience it in our lives. We live in a certain way. We fall down on our face. It hurts. We realize it. And we get up and we do it again. And we fall again. And again and again. Which is fine. Because this is one of the best ways to learn. If we are willing to learn. If, we, if our eyes are closed, even when we get up, then we're not going to learn anything. All we do is just paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. From yesterday to today to tomorrow. Everything changes. But we are so 
immersed in our own unchanging ideas or reality that for me nothing is changing. So the, the analogy of walking in the dark with the candle behind you is, I think, very fitting. But that's the renunciation that he's talking about. And, and this kind of uh, renunciation means that moment by moment, I need to examine what am I starting to grasp and hold on to? What becomes way too important right now? And how do I release? So the grasping is automatic. The release is not. The release ha is a result of conscious effort. So if I'm not consciously, consciously making an effort to release, I am grasping, tightening. The grip. And if we don't do anything about it, the older we get, the tighter the grip is. Because we get really good at it, right? And this koan, this is what the reason I want to bring this koan up today, this koan brings up four lines from a 12 chapter scripture named the Sutra of Complete Awakening. It offers us basic instructions for working with the mind during zazen and during post-zazen practice. And it, it, it's a great way to stay aware of this grasping mechanism, the building mechanism, conceptual building. First line says, be at all times without deluded thoughts arising. Be at all times without deluded thoughts arising. Now we look at it and we think, well, this is great. I can't do that. Once in a while, I may be able to do it. But most of the time, I am completely immersed in all kinds of thoughts. Maybe I don't always call them deluded. Some I call them great thoughts. But still, I am following something. Right? So, and basic Zazen instructions begin with clarifying that we're not trying to stop the thinking process. We're not trying to stop it or ignore it. Thoughts arise and vanish continuously. And that's not an issue as long as we don't follow or solidify them. What is a diffused thought? Reality can only be experienced right here and right now. So any thought that grabs our attention creates a sense of duality. And since all things are of one reality, any duality is illusory. So to be at all times without a deluded thought or deluded thoughts arising is to keep coming back to being. It's not to eliminate or suppress, but to turn back to being. Right? To turn back to that again and again. And that's a practice. Now the second line says, Moreover, with regards to all deluded states of mind, do not try to extinguish them. Where do deluded thoughts come from? What and who gives them substantiation? If we recognize that all thoughts arise of nothing and have essentially no owner or operator, there is no one there to produce any issues about them or leave traces behind. Right? So they arise, but if we're not there to comment on the commentaries, 
Then what happens? It's not not having commentaries. It's also not trying to eliminate judgmental way of thinking, right? So because we all do have judgmental experience, judgmental thinking. That's not an option. But, th but having a judgmental thought floating in your mind doesn't make you a judgmental person unless you follow it. Then there is, at that moment, or the mo that thought gives birth to a judgmental person. Why? Because I am the one who is feeling this way and I'm going to go and say something to someone about it. Then there is the birth of a judgmental person. Brand new judgmental person. But if judgmental thoughts arise and we observe them, then what? Then, like anything else, they subside. Like anything else, they fall apart. Then what? Then we're back to this sense of spaciousness. So we say, everything is transient. So we say, do not push, do not pull. Any thought that arises in the mind. And this is, again, basic instructions in Zazen, but basic instructions in Zazen are not for beginners. Or we're all beginners. Whichever works best for you, use that. We all need to go back again and again and again to basic instructions to Zazen, because if we don't, we get to a point that we think we know what we're doing on the cushion. And, of course, we ignore karma. Because even if we do get a handle of it and we know what we're doing, next day, next month, next year, karma shows up with a vengeance. And we're back on our face. So, whatever arises in the mind, do not push, don't ignore, don't suppress, do not pull, do not become enamored with, interested in, whatever the mind is saying, do not become too interested in it. The third line says, dwelling in the realm of delusion, do not add discriminating knowledge. Do not add discriminating consciousness means to not add any extra and no comparisons. Again, leave it alone, right? So dwelling in the realm of delusion, when we are, when we find ourselves stuck, do not add more stuckness to being stuck. There, there may be a sense of feeling stuck, but if I add to that, I am stuck like I was five years ago, two years ago, or that's all I am, that's all I can do. That's adding more. That's solidifying something. So there is a realm of delusion. That's okay. It's not only okay, it's natural to experience that. So do not add, add discriminating knowledge. Do not bring an idea of a better state of being and then put it side by side with that and say, I prefer this one. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to feel stuck. I want to feel free. Because I did yesterday. Or I watched something or someone about that that is doing a better job than me and I want to be that. That's adding discriminating knowledge. In a way, leaving it naked, as I said a few couple of weeks ago, in terms of Zen practice, leave it naked. Do not define it. And in the same way, do not define the thoughts that's arising. 
Leave it alone. As Dogen said, when light-headedness comes, be light, sorry, when light-heartedness comes, be light-hearted. When dark-mindedness comes, be dark-minded. Be in terms of experience. But not as a fixed static experience, as a moving, changing experience. It's very different. The fault line says, when knowledge is absent, do not distinguish reality. So you practice for a while, maybe opened up the grasping hand of thought and able to see through old habits, maybe found some sense of freedom. And one day you suddenly experience this amazing breakthrough. And for a moment, all the walls drop and you feel one with your surroundings. It is real. Incredible, incredible experience. And then you may think, I got it. This must be it. This is what they're all talking about. That's extra. For there lies the extra. So there is, there are incredible, all kinds of experiences. Well, they're all incredible. But there are those that everything drops, everything falls away, and there are those experiences that everything feels so stuck. All kinds of experiences. To not dwell means to not dwell in this or in that which goes against logic, because why would I not want to dwell in such incredible experiences? It feels good. And again, the, the issue is not with the experience, it, the issue is with the, the desire to create, to, to create a form from formless, to create a fixed form from formless, and then crawl into that and call it my home, or call it me. So there are deluded states of being and there are enlightened states of being. But in deluded states of being, you are not deluded. And in an enlightened state of being, you are not enlightened. And that's a bummer for us, right? Because I don't want this, but I want that. I want to be the one who is enlightened. And I want to be the one who is enlightened is the same as I want to run away from the one who is deluded, from, from the deluded me. It's the same exact tendency that finds another way to latch on. Not dwelling is also not knowing. Right? Not knowing. Not knowing who I am. Not knowing who you are. And again, that's a challenge for us because I want to know. Or at least I want to convince or, or convince myself or delude myself, right? Or create an idea of I know. The footnotes to those lines, right? At all times do not produce deluded thoughts. Footnote says no. The second line also do not try to annihilate deluded states of mind. No. In the realm of false conception, do not apply knowledge. No. And do not find reality in no knowledge. No. Just one no. You can change it to yes. If it doesn't have an opposite. 
This is not the no that has an opposite. It's the no that stops us from grabbing or grasping. It's the no that un so it goes under our need to create something. It pulls the ground under us. So everything falls apart. So there is nothing to grab hold on to. But there's also no one that wants to grab a hold on to anything. So having nothing to hold is fine as long as I'm okay with not holding. Which again brings it right back to me. So I need to turn around and ask, what, why, do I, why do I believe that I need to grasp? Or what am I obeying when I'm grasping? You can adjust. <clears throat> Winang, the sixth patriarch, said, successive thoughts do not stop. Past thoughts, present thoughts, and future thoughts follow one after the other without cessation. If one instant of thought is cut off, the Dharma body separates from the physical body and in the midst of successive thoughts, there will be no place for attachment to anything. If one instant of thought clings, then successive thoughts cling. This is known as being fettered, being chained. If in all things successive thoughts do not cling, then you are unfettered. Therefore, non-abiding is made the basis. Basic instructions. Right? We may not always see it that way, but what he's saying is that one instant, so that's all it takes. You can be awakened, you can become, you can experience that instantly like that. If you stop following. But if you follow, you also experience something. And that in a way, frees us from the idea of waiting. But we have to take, but it's not just freeing us because we feel we have to take a responsibility. Because as long as I am in a state of waiting or thinking I am gradually making my way to an enlightened state of being, I give myself ample amount of space to make a lot of issues or to create a lot of suffering. Because I am, I am doing my best here. I'm doing my best here. That's something we don't need to get caught up in. I'm not doing my best. I'm doing. My best has another idea with it. Right? Or it has rungs in it. Right? It has levels in it. That's us superimposing ideas on reality. Reality is, does not have any gradations or any levels. So how can I be doing my best versus what? I'm engaged or I'm not, or I'm engaged in practice or I'm engaged in not practicing, which means I'm practicing something else. So there is no I'm doing my best here. We have to take responsibility. I'm doing. Period. So this is what we, we practice over and over and over again. Dwelling nowhere. We arise, we arouse the mind 
that sees and knows how to cut through our story-making habits, having no fixed abode, no fixed self, we tend, we take care of home affairs, we do what we need to do, we pay the bills, take good care of this body and its natural needs. Huineng says, if one instant of thought clings, then successive thoughts cling. Again, basic instructions, we guide beginners to simply observe thoughts appearing, thoughts disappearing, and to be careful to not engage, to not get hooked. Not to think, not to think the thought means to not engage. Not to think the thoughts does not mean not experiencing. Succession, endless succession of thoughts. The second we bite the bait and begin munching on the thought, then successive thoughts follow and we experience what we call chain thinking, but being attached, being chained to our chain thinking mechanism. So as we know, one moment we're there and next moment we're gone. And not just for a moment, could be for the rest of the zazen period. So any thoughts, good thoughts, bad thoughts, pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, memories of past or futurizing thoughts, all, all are meaningless, selfless, and life-restricting when grasped. On the other hand, an instant of not clinging to a thought will follow by non-clinging successive thoughts. And then freedom can be experienced. But even with that, freedom can be experienced, but there is nobody who is free because there was nobody who was chained. When we are chained and we identified with it, then we look for the one who is free or we want to be free. That one wants to be free. But when we realize that we are not chained through practice, then there is freedom. So there is experience of freedom, but at such a state, we're not preoccupied with trying to look for the one who is free. Doesn't matter. The pointer says the manifest koan depends solely on right now. So a manifestation of a koan, right? A manifest koan, koan is public case. Public pertains to all of us. That's what it means. Whether you get it, whether you think you get it, you don't get it, that doesn't matter. But the koan is not asking us to understand. It is asking us to enter something or exit something, right? It is asking us to go beyond the mind that says, I get it or I don't get it. How do I experience the koan? is much more important than what do I think about it. So a manifest koan depends solely on right now. So although these koans may be taken from 1,500,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago, they're not. They actually are taken, oh no, they, are, they come alive, they come to life right now. The stories may, may happen a long time ago, but it's not about the story. So how do I enter a koan is the question. 
How do I realize that the Quran is only about me, only about now? Whether I think I'm stuck or free. The fundamental family style does not, does not go beyond the fundamental. So what we're talking about does not go beyond. It is right here. So the fundament, fundamental family style or the style of Zen practice is, does not go beyond the fundamental. It is about that. It is about who you are in essence. It's not an idea to try to understand and then take on and then drop, uh, drop a different idea I was holding on before that. Now, if you forcibly set up divisions and foolishly expend efforts, it's all drawing eyebrows for chaos, putting a handle on a ball. Now, this is a story based on a Chinese uh, legend. Uh, Mr. Chaos, Konton, means the universe itself. So this is ancient legend says a long time ago, lived Mr. Chaos. He had no eyes or nose, our own essential nature. Although Mr. Chaos was completely free, the others came in, came to him and tried to bore holes for his eyes and nose and a mouth, which resulted in his, in his death. So this is, it is a depiction of our free state of being and our stuck and deadened or dead state of being, right? So copying, pasting, copying, pasting is akin to being dead while alive, right? So, and what this is talking about is do not get caught up, leave it naked, leave it free, leave it empty, leave it alone or leave yourself alone. Don't try to understand. There's no need to. Trying to understand creates the problem. The verse, magnificent, clearly outstanding. Clamor pierces the head, so magnificent, clearly outstanding. It is magnificent. It is clearly outstanding. Then the second one, clamor pierces the head, and we experience, we know what that feels like. We sit, fold our legs together, turn inwardly, and all we experience is just a lot of noise, constant, endless noise, thought after thought after thought after thought. I am, I'm not, I want to be there, I didn't get there yet. I'm disappointed, I'm happy, I'm sad. It does pierce the head. But we have to know how to meet that. We have to know how to meet it with hands-off attitude. Walking along in tranquil places. We are, at the same time that we feel what we feel, experience what we experience, we are walking along within tranquility itself. We are in fact supported by tranquility. Underfoot, the thread is cut and I am perfectly free. And the footnote to that says, walking freely to the land of the immortal. <clears throat> An old master said, let go of the gross elements and do not grasp within the nature of quiescence, drink and eat as you may. All activities are impermanent. All is empty. This is the great complete awakening of the realized ones. 
All activities are impermanent. Now, this is not negation. This is affirmation of everything. As he says, drink and eat as you may. Do whatever. Anything goes. As long as we understand what it means to walk within this nature of quiescence. As long as we know how to not grasp. Then it doesn't really matter what we do. Do not be disturbed. A prescription written on a thousand, two thousand five hundred years old paper. So it is, this, these four lines should be seen by us as a prescription, right? As a guide that's telling us, as a guide that knows us very well, and is telling us, when you meet this, make nothing about that. When you make nothing, uh, when you make something about that, don't make anything about that either. And on and on and on and on. Let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. So I'll finish with this from uh, Master Seng Zhao, Chinese Buddhist monk from the fourth century, a disciple of uh, Kumala Jiva. He said, the mind is like water. When it is still, there is, there is reflection. When disturbed, no mirror. Muddled by folly and craving, fanned by misleading influences. It surges and billows, never stopping for a moment. It's like trying to look for a flowing stream flowing stream and see your appearance. It never forms. If you take the movement of mind as the basis, then existence is born based on significations. When the reason completes its initial movement, there is no more basis. If you take nothingness as the basis, then existence is born based on nothingness. Nothing is not based on nothing at this point, there is no more basis. So whatever we experience, we like it, we don't like it, we consider it good, consider it bad. Whatever it is, do not dwell. Do not grasp. Make nothing of it. Make no one, that's probably better, make no one of it. Then, then what? Then what? Then where do you find yourself? Thank you.